0: Whoever starts those claps, so. All right, well, welcome to Hiawatha, guys. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting for the first Sunday, glad you guys are with us. Thanks for joining us for our our worship gathering. Um, We are, as Peter said, we are in a series right now, kind of wrapping up our series in Genesis, which um, we started back in January. And we're going to look at uh, character Judah today and uh, Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Uh, from Genesis 38. Uh, It's a great little story, not one you'll probably find in kids' Bibles, Uh, but honestly, that's true for a lot of Genesis, so kind of par for the course there. But a little note on Judah, and just generally to speak uh, on him to begin, Judah is a really important character in this book and throughout the Bible. He becomes one of, and actually he is here too, but he has kids that become a tribe of Israel, we call them. So uh, Jacob, who's renamed Israel, is Judah's dad. He has 12 sons. They become these, this kind of tribal entity that's known as this kind of corporate group Israel, this nation of Israel, that God works through in the Old Testament to reveal his character, to anticipate the New Testament. At this point, they're under more of an Old Testament system. There's, there's contrast there. We'll talk about some of that a little bit maybe today. But anticipate a New Testament and kind of typify Christ and pro- pro- prophesy about him and prophetically point, uh, but also become paradigms of, of us. So we've been saying that throughout this series. If you're new, you know, when you see characters like Judah, we should think of two things, kind of a, a two, two-sided coin. One, how are they a picture of us as sinners being shown grace they don't deserve? And how does that point us to God or Christ? And two, how do they resemble as ancestors of Jesus? How are they resemble Christ? You know, like our great-great-grandfathers or grandmothers might look like us and resemble us, have similar hobbies, maybe the same profession we find out reading uh, their obituaries or something uh, later in life. Who knows? Uh, there's some kind of ancestral similarity. So we see that. Uh, Judah's going to be both today. Uh, he is a picture of us as a sinner and a picture of Christ uh, as we look. Actually, outside of Genesis 38, we'll talk about that um, as kind of a, a substituter for his uh, brother Benjamin. We'll, uh, we'll come there. But also, uh, the stories themselves typify grace over and against works. Uh, again, just to give you a heads up here, we'll, we'll dive into this. But um, Jacob's family tree, uh, to remind you uh, where Judah lies here, uh, Jacob, renamed Israel, um, had two wives, uh, Leah and Rachel, but then also um, their servants, Zilpah and Bilhah, and through them he had 12 kids. Judah's the fourth born here of Leah. And so um, we'll talk about Reuben today, the firstborn, and how he's not the ancestor of Christ. It's actually Judah, the fourthborn. There's a reason for that. Not Levi, who's associated with law, but rather Judah, who's associated with the line of kings. There's a reason for that, too. Some of that, again, we'll talk about. But also not Joseph. Uh, Jesus comes, even though Joseph points to Christ in a lot of ways. We talked about last week, if you weren't here, a big chunk of Genesis at the end is given over to that story. And it typifies Christ and his passion, his suffering, his resurrection, his intercession for sinners between God and people and and all that great stuff. It's interesting that Judah is the one Jesus comes through uh, and uh, and not Joseph. So uh, to give you a little heads up of where we're headed. The story today, uh, some of you guys have read this, but it has to do with uh, Judah leaving his family and settling for a season in Canaan. Marrying a Canaanite named Tamar, a couple of red flags there, leaving his family and marrying someone, really not of his tribe, there are some spiritual ramifications for that, usually, that weren't great, and so, but anyway, um, he has kids with uh, this woman, and ultimately, we'll see, with his daughter-in-law, which is uh, very strange, but we'll get there, uh, but one of whom serves as the continuation of the line of Christ, whose name is Perez. In fact, in uh, Matthew 1, these are literally the first words of the New Testament, and it says this This is the genealogy of, the, of Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One, that means, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, and Perez being that chosen, their twins, Perez being that, that chosen one, whose mother was uh, Tamar. So, just want you to see this right off the bat, that at the beginning of your New Testament, uh, Matthew looks at this genealogy of Christ, he sends way back to Abraham, and says, this story we're about to read points to Christ. These characters that, that are in Genesis 38, kind of what happens to them, the circumstances that surround their life and all this weirdness and dysfunction, but also some beauty, points to Christ, which is fascinating. Uh, we've, to understand Matthew 1, we actually have to understand uh, T- Tamar and understand who she is and the story. And um, so... A lot of repeated themes we've seen earlier in Genesis, we'll recap, and we're also going to see a a picture of Judah uh, transform here as well, kind of convert from this sinner to recognizing his sin to becoming a guy who kind of serves as the hero in parts of the Joseph narrative, which we skipped over last week, but I'll read some of this week. So look out for that as well, too. All right, so overall, though, lots of sin and lots of grace, again, kind of par for the course, but let's read here, and Peter, you got it again? Genesis 1. Sorry, 38, uh, verse 1. I'll read the whole chapter. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son and called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur's firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. he and his friend Hera the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What you give me that you come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet ring, your cord, and your staff, it's in your hand. So she gave, he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she rose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her, and he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute, who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult, cult prostitute's been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men at the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out, and let her be burned. And she was as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shilla. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore... His name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. It's a very normal birth experience, in other words. A very (laughs) kind of standard fare there. Um, All right, well, let's talk about this one. Um, This is um, Genesis 38. This happens now after Judah and his brothers sell their brother Joseph into slavery. A lot of years transpire between that and when they end up going to Egypt to look for grain. If you remember the story, and they see him, and they get reunited with him, and all of that, in between all of those things, this happens. So it's enough time to get married, have three kids, all this stuff with his daughter-in-law to happen, have more kids. It's a, it's a long. It's actually quite a long time, and then all the stuff at the end of the Joseph narrative occurs, uh, which I'll talk some about a little bit um, later on, but. Uh, One of the reasons why I think, and this is just an aside, but I think the story is just messed up, right, in a lot of ways. um, One of the reasons why I think we know the Bible is true, though, is that it contains stories like these. And then it says that its personified solution, Jesus Christ, came through this line. You know, if, if you and I were making up a story or a religion, we would never write stories like this. And, and even if we would, we'd never say that the hero of our story, the hero of our religion, the hero of our, um, of our narrative is somehow associated with this. We'd never say that. Uh, we'd, we'd make him out to be uh, the strong, or the hero, or this Judah figure who's the ancestor of the, of the ultimate hero would be a much cleaner guy. You know, and so we have stories like this, I think, for a number of reasons in the Bible, but one of which is to say that uh, this is not made up. God must have, r- have written this. God must have been the one. Otherwise, when it's being copied and copied and copied and copied and copied, written, uh, written down and orally over the centuries, it would have been changed by sinful people to try to kind of polish up the religion a little bit. But it never was. You know, this is, this is the ancestry of Jesus Christ. This is what the first words of the New Testament say. Jesus came from this, Oh, and then, by the way, a little later on, he dies the worst death possible on a cross among criminals and is put to shame. We never make that up either, right? So all this stuff kind of relates. You know, it, it can't be calculated. It can't be, you know, anticipated. Uh, it just simply is, and it shows warts and all what, what people are really like and how a good God can, can work uh, through it all. So it's really unprecedented. Some of you guys may have read other, like, holy books. Like, myself, I've read the Quran and Uh, parts of the Quran, parts of the Book of Mormon, parts of the Gita. It's just unprecedented. Uh, There's just not a lot of precedence out there for uh, holy books to include stories like this, not to polish them up, but then to say that the Savior figure comes from them and is is somehow associated with them. There's uh, no really good, if if you're making something up, no really good reason to do that other than, well, maybe it's true. And maybe there's a way to kind of bring truth and goodness out of this, which, of course, Christ does. So with that aside, uh, to summarize the story here, it's kind of confusing in some aspects, so make sure we're all on the same page. This story, Genesis 38, is basically about failed leveret marriage. Leveret marriage was a law of the day that helped provide for and protect widowed, childless women. One of the most vulnerable types of people of that day would have been a widow without a son. There's no one to protect her, no future, no work for her. She wasn't really remarriable. Um, And so the law stated that if a brother dies and leaves a wife behind and she has no son, it was, and you can see Judah in the story say this to Onan, the secondborn, it was the duty of the brother-in-law, the oldest of the brothers if there's more than one, to marry her and help her conceive a son. And I know that's very strange, but, you know, try to understand that it had everything to do with justice for the widow, concern for the husbandless. It was basically saving a life. And so when when God sets this law up a little bit later in Deuteronomy with Israel, you see the story in the book of Ruth as well, if you've read Ruth. Um, It's strange. It's not something that's still over us, you know, in the New Testament era. This was an Old Testament kind of cultural thing, and it it, in its own right kind of shows the character of God. It shows concern for these women, and we'll we'll talk about that in a little sense. But it's actually a matter of life and death. It might seem kind of like that's too dramatic, but it it actually was in a lot of cases for these women. Certainly quality of life, but uh, actually quantity of life as well. But in this story, then, there's a twist, right, at the end. So it's, levirate marriage is in play, but there's a twist in that the brother of Ur, who dies, the oldest son, Onan, won't, for selfish reasons, help Tamar conceive. He wanted to have sex with her, but didn't want to help her conceive. And so God sees that, sees the selfishness in that, the wickedness, and he dies. He's killed. The other brother, Shelah, who's the youngest, and too young at that time to marry Tamar outright, is kind of promised to Tamar by Judah, but then sort of subversively and in a tricky manner because Judah doesn't really want to give another son to be associated with this woman of whom he already lost two sons. He's kind of like scared. Well, these two older sons associated with this woman, even though it's not her fault, it's their sin, died. He's kind of like scared, selfish, holds him back. And so Shelah is not uh, kind of jokingly or, uh, you know, passively promised but not seriously promised to Tamar by Judah, but... um, So then Tamar takes matters into her own hands, disguises herself as a prostitute, tricks her father-in-law into having sex with her, and conceives twins. Very normal behavior, right? Uh, Judah finds out, is ready to burn her alive for her crime, but then Tamar basically shows Judah's driver's license, essentially, that he was the father, and then there's this spiritual climax, at least with Judah, when he says, she is more righteous than I. That's a big moment for his transformation, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but she is more righteous than I, And then she ends up having twins. The younger twin is chosen, Perez. There's an issue with how they're born exactly and and why it's written down that way, um, resembling Rebecca's kids and, and all that. But why it's written down this way, which we'll get to a little bit later on. But just note for now, the younger twin is chosen to be this functional carrier of the blessing to a cursed world, to further point ahead to God's remedy for Jesus Christ. So if you weren't aware of this, Genesis is basically a a, a gathering of narratives, a collection of narratives about a family. When when sin comes into the world and death comes into the world, God says, I'm going to stay strangely committed, and the way I'm going to reveal my solution to this curse, the solution to this death, is through people, is through a family, which in and of itself points us to Christ because Jesus is a person. Jesus was the guide man. And so it kind of hints ahead in in that capacity. But again, like I said before, this family is messed up like us, and it has these kind of sweet spot moments as well that resemble Jesus. It's a double, kind of a double-sided coin there that we have to look on both sides to when we unpack really, really tricky, seemingly irredeemable narratives uh, like this. But they are, in fact, very redeemable. We'll talk about that. So the big question then is, what in the world is going on? So we'll talk about that, I guess, a little bit. But just kind of lay that out there. Also, why why is this here? Uh, if you picked up. 20 commentaries on this book from a library or something, you know, some of them would, would actually doubt that this should be included. It interrupts the Joseph narrative. It's weird. Nothing's redeemable in it. And they would kind of challenge the fact that it should be in the Bible. Then you have uh, what we would consider here at Hiawatha better commentaries, asking more biblical questions and have better presuppositions. And they would ask why. So not should this be in the Bible, but why is this in the Bible? Much better question. As you guys read the Bible the rest of your lives, ask that question it's, it's supposed to be gathered uh, in this capacity, and it's, it's, it's measure, it's, it's a canon, it's assembled by God through people, it's perfect in that regard. So asking in, in instead uh, the better question of, of why really aligns with this other more specific question is, why, why is Jesus from this line, and where is the gospel, where, where is the fact that Jesus dies on a cross for our sins and is raised again and saves us by grace, not by our works? Uh, where's, the, where's the goodness of the character of God, Is love? Um, all that good news, gospel truth, kind of embedded here, whether, even if it's implicit, how is that here in, in this story? So to, to answer these questions, we're going to do two things today. One, look at all kinds of repeated Genesis themes. And they're repeated if you know the themes. If you don't, that's okay, They'll be, you'll, you'll see them for the first time. But just understand that this is, this is uh, you know, not the first time we're seeing a lot of these themes. Uh, the, there's a literary device called Repetition in a lot of uh, literature even today, but the Bible uses this as well to create emphasis and to say this really matters. And so we'll see a lot of repeated themes here that Judah is in line with. And then we'll look at Judah himself and his transformation, like I talked about before. So let's start with the first one. The first repeated theme, and I have three. Almost goes without saying, but everyone in this story is, is an absolute mess and kind of again, kind of par for the course Genesis, uh, you know, pick your story and you've got something like this. I was talking to someone after first service and he was just saying, at this point you're just kind of like, well, I kind of expect it. <laughs> you know, if you've read Genesis, like, yeah, I guess we've kind of seen some of this before and I'm just almost kind of numb to the, to the, um, the idea and there's a lot of truth for that. Uh, but everyone in the story is an absolute mess. There, and, and because of that, there's no real moral to follow here. There's not seven bad people and one pretty good person that, okay, I, I like what he did or she did there and, you know, be like that person. Everyone is, is sinful. And that's actually the point. As we've been saying in this series, if there's no moral example, what's the point? The only thing left is grace, you know, showing towards sinners. God almost working unfairly towards people that don't deserve it. And that's what we see here. Uh, one of the questions you can ask right off the bat, I certainly did reading this, is, why are only the, the first two born of Judah killed for their sin? Why are only Ur and Onan killed by God for their sin? You guys wonder that? Why why not Judah for his selfishness or cluelessness about his own sin? Why not Tamar for her deception? Why not both of them for their sexual sin? Why are they spared? What's the answer? It can't be because of works, right? It can't be because they're better people. Because they're a mess in this story. They were just shown grace by God, period, undeservedly. Grace defies logic. It's unfair. Remember that. Grace is not a fair thing. You can't truly understand grace and be a person of robust fairness at the same time. Not that fairness is always wrong, but it it can't be. It can't be both. And the Bible has stories like this to pound that home and to say grace is unexpected. It doesn't come based on what we've done and what we deserve. It's It's not a paycheck. It just comes in spite of ourselves, and in spite of our sexual sin, in spite of our, lying, our propensity to lie, in spite of our distrusting God, in spite of our functional hatred for daughters-in-laws of our, of our lives or whoever, it comes in an unfair but gracious manner uh, to people like us. And so it's, it's really good news. And I, so I ask that question. Ur er died because he did wickedness before God. Have I ever done wickedness before God? Why am I still breathing? These types of questions we got to ask about this passage. If you've done the same thing he has, why are you and I still here? The only answer is grace, right? God somehow passes over us. And at this point in the story, it's unclear why. It's unclear how exactly he's going to be able to do that and remain just as well uh, against sin, uh, which is right for him to do it. But he's doing it nonetheless. And so here, God is not counting sin against some people. In the New Testament, the more clear thing is God doesn't count the sins of those who believe in the gospel against them. He forgets them. He does not remember our sins, the Bible says. Instead, Jesus absorbs them on the cross. And so Judah and Tamar and other characters in this story are pictures of people like you and me who have major issues, who do not have faith, who have rebelled against God, and yet and are sinning, and God is not, God is patiently kind of, Romans 3 uses this phrase, divine forbearance, passing over sin, which means in, in his divine patience, he passes over sin in Old Testament times, knowing that Christ is coming to, to deal with it, and to save them, and so the future remedy kind of informs how God is acting here, if you kind of read that backwards into, into the story. Amazing news for sinners. If you've done wickedness before God, and you know you have, Good news. Things like this happened in the first book of the Bible. And for you, too, there can be hope for new life. There can be hope for a way for you and God to be reconciled, even though you've done wrong and I have before him. So the solution is looking to him, right? Not inside. The solution here is not Tamar was an amazing woman. Judah was, oh, outstanding. That's not the answer. We cannot get there from this story, so don't go to yourself in terms of what it means to be saved. Go to God, who shows grace unfairly but beautifully uh, to those who cry out to him for help. All right, we'll see more of that. Uh, Second issue here, though, in terms of the grace idea, is justice for Tamar. We'll get to Judah in a bit here. But in regards to Tamar, we see in the story that no one was looking out for her. Really, generations of men uh, passed over her. But God helped her conceive. And, and that's not to condone her course of actions in every way. I hope that's obvious, but just in case it's not, God is not condoning actions here. That's, that's the point, right? God's not this kind of reactionary God towards, oh, they did something good, now I'm going to bless them. Or, oh, bad again, here's the punishment. That's not how grace works. And so it's in spite of the sin that God is somehow using it for good. Remember, we have to have a category for this, or we cannot understand stories like this in the Bible. God has to be a God who uses wickedness and evil, and intended for good. Genesis 50, 20 says that. We'll talk about this next week as well. Joseph at the end of his life, the end of Genesis says this idea, which links with stuff like this. It's the same book, same context. Joseph says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, that many lives would be saved uh, through this famine. God intended it, but it took the evil, it took the suffering to bring it about. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. And as Christians, at the center of our faith, remember, is what? God experiencing injustice and suffering and pain and death. Evil for us. And so this shouldn't be shocking. It shouldn't be shocking for us as Christians. I know it can be sometimes, and that's that's okay. But it ultimately shouldn't be, because we know at the center of the Bible is a God who used an evil thing, Jesus dying on the cross, to bring about the greatest good, your and my salvation forever. And so we should look at Bible passages like this in our lives, and not be shocked when good comes from bad. Not be shocked when difficulty actually shapes my character for the better. Strangely. Not be shocked when God can still be patient with people like this and pass over sin because we know the cross is coming. So rather than with Tamar, it's, it's, it's not to condone her course of actions, but rather it's to show that God must have been at work here. Narratively, it's beautiful. I, I'd point you to. to uh, the book of Esther, for example, in the, the Old Testament, where God is never mentioned, but clearly there. It's another literary device that, uh, again, I'm first service to, I blanked on the fancy word for it, but it's, it's like the, the, the art of, like, absence in a story where you, you don't say something, but by not saying it, you kind of say it. The Bible's masterful at that. Esther's masterful at that. Genesis 38 is masterful at that. How do we know God's, God's here? There are so many places in this story where it could have gone off track, and Tamar could have died, or what Tamar's plan was could have been derailed, right? What if Judah recognized her voice? Instantly derailed. The whole thing's done. It was his daughter-in-law. He could have easily recognized her voice, but he was probably drunk. What if some other man propositioned her first? What if some other man had sex with her? What if he had payment... And he had the sheep there or something in payment, so the whole thing with the signet ring and the staff didn't happen, so therefore Tamar couldn't prove who he was. She would have been burned. Or what if after all of that she didn't even conceive, which could have easily happened? You know, lever at marriage wouldn't have in any way worked there at all, and she wouldn't have, been, wouldn't have been cared for. We're supposed to note the silent, sovereign hand of God here. God is caring for Tamar. He's, what others intend for evil, he's intending for good for her. He, he's an ultimate kinsman-redeemer type, if you know that phrase in the book of Ruth. This, this idea comes up again. Um, where others won't do their duty, like Onan, helping out their brother's name and showing grace to their sister-in-law by marrying her and, and, and all of that. Um, people failing that and, and not being willing to do it, uh, God provides. God cares. It's justice for the oppressed, and the widow, and the childless, and the outcast. You know, it's it's one reason why the church is called to this kind of stuff, but also why all of us, whether we're these types of women or not, men and women can say spiritually, that's who I am. I'm, I'm an outcast. I have no future. I have no hope. No matter how good my life is, I'm going to die someday, and nothing will matter. We're hopeless until God comes in and says, and gives us that hope, and cares for us in our state. And, So you see this theme a lot in Genesis. You see women kind of cast aside, but God's still caring. You know, in in a sea in this story of bad husbands and fathers, God cares for the wife and the widow and the mistreated, which, one, points us to Christ, and two, which is why the Bible is full of commands, in the New Testament especially, to husbands to love your wives. Don't be like the men here. Uh, You're the Christ figure in the home, so show it. Uh, sacrifice for her, love her, die her die for her. Don't mistreat her, but um, but seek justice for her. Uh, lift her up and build her up and encourage her and in her work and, and and all this stuff. So um, that's why we have those two kind of things: commands for husbands, but in the, in the, with a backdrop of this, but also the ultimate foreground is Christ, who is you know the the God in the passage working silently for people like this who are cast aside, and so the very least, it's of a basic thing, but some of you have maybe never heard about God before, and we need to see his character here, this is what he's like. He actually cares about you. If this is our story, and it is, if we are the Tamar in the story, uh, God is working in your life silently in ways you don't even really realize. He's working to bring you to himself, and part of that is you're here this morning hearing the gospel. Maybe you were dragged here, maybe you just saw the sign walked by, or you know, you've been here for a while, but you're not sure if you're going to stay. You're not a believer yet, and that's great. We love that you're here. Um, who knows? But you're here in the gospel, and that that may look circumstantial. Like, well, I got up and I thought I'm going to go to church, and I went, and you did. But Tamar had plans here too. But they're actually God's plans, and so it's the same way with us. We make our plans, but God's behind them. And so the fact that you're here, or you know, any church that preaches Christ and Him crucified. The rest of your days, I mean, that's, that's a gift. That means he loves you, and he's looking out for you. So always keep that in mind. All right, that's the first thing. Second thing is <clears throat> unintended sexual relations, which is actually a repeated Genesis theme. Um, this is actually the second time in the book, maybe you saw this, where someone, a man, has sex with someone else, a woman, thinking they were someone else, only to realize later, because they were veiled, no way, what did I do? I had sex with someone else. You guys remember the other story that that was in the, in the Bible? Who else had sex with someone and realized, oh no? Jacob, right? Judah's dad. When he worked seven years for Rachel, remember this story? He loved Rachel, and then on the wedding night, they're going to go consummate the marriage in the tent, and Jacob's probably a little bit drunk, and she's veiled, but then Leah's kind of, the older sister's slipped in. She and her dad, Laban, conspire, and Jacob has sex with Leah instead, and kind of consummate, this marriage kind of comes out of nowhere. She's given, and even though Rachel was worked for, Leah was the one given, um, and he ends up marrying Rachel too, but first point of that story is this weird kind of, what just happened? You know? So it's funny that it's repeated. It, it happens once, but then it happens again with the son, you know? Apparently it's this, it's this um, you know, genie, this passed down trait where, you know, it's, we, we have this problem uh, sleeping with women that we don't know who they are. And we realize, oh, no, you know, it's passed down. It's, it's supposed to be kind of funny, you know, here, but also face-palming and head-shaking, like, these guys, this family, what in the world? Uh, and again, going, circling back to the question, this is where Jesus came from? And it's yes. It's a glorious yes. Both that he saves people who do these kinds of things on both sides, who commit this kind of sexual sin and other sins, but also on the other side, what principle, what theological principle here is embodied in these stories? That the Bible wants to be pounded home, not just once, but twice. The first book of our Bible has two stories like this. It's not like some hidden narrative in Ezra or something you can easily m- miss over. This is the first book of the Bible, you know? Sin comes into the world and men sleep with veiled women who they think are someone but are actually someone else. Like, that's just a big part of the story question is why, right? Like it always is. Why, why is this the question if it's repeated? And the answer has to do with remembering Jesus' genealogical line, remember, is both historical and the- theological. Thematically, unplanned sexual encounters that birth children mean something. And don't tweet me on that, because that's, don't quote me there. If you're trying to summarize a sermon, don't go with that one, because it could be greatly misunderstood. But the reality is, Unplanned sexual encounters that birth children that become the chosen ones in the line of Christ are, are a part of the story. We can't get around that. It's not an oops, that happened once, not sure what to do with it. It happened a second time here as well with the next generation. So if you remember that Jesus' genealogical line is both historical and theological, um, thematically, what does it point us to? You know, God's redeeming this evil for good, right? He's, he's working out some good from it. A couple of uh, weeks ago, we looked at Leah. Remember, G- Genesis 29, and then today, they wake up, behold, it was Leah, but then later on, Ju- Judah's like, oh man, when he sees his driver's license, basically. What was the point of the first story? It was grace. Leah was given, Rachel was worked for. This is a new concept to You understand the New Testament reads these stories this way. They talk about Jacob and Esau and their kids and family members of of the patriarchs in this capacity. Usually one is worked for and the other one is kind of given by grace. We're seeing that here as well. And that points us ahead in the story to see the character of God, but also where grace is fully flushed out on the cross, where our, our salvation is given, our marriage to God is given, not earned. Kind of the new conception of life is given at the cross as a gift. It's not really worked for and intended. So it's the same here as well. In other words, life truly in this story comes not from Judah's intention and work, but passively by Tamar's intention and God's grace through that. So we can say just broadly then, life truly, salvific life, eternal life, comes not from our plans and intention and work, our seeking of it out, but it's passively by God's grace. In other words, there's another party involved. When, when Judah looked at his life and saw these kids, these twins born and what happened, it was sin. God intended some good from it, the, the creation of life and ultimately his son who would come from that. But, you know, right in the moment, you have, um, you have this third party. Uh, so Judah could never say, as, as he looked ahead generations, as God made it more clear, my solution will come from Judah, he couldn't say, I had something to do with that. God, you're lucky I was here because I had three sons. And yeah, I know you killed two of them, but this Shilla guy, he's the guy. It's not Shella. It should be from his marriage, like his actual kid. You know, like normal normal people have kids, right? He should get the inheritance. He should be the one. But it's this child that was not sought out, this sexual encounter that was not sought out. Wasn't good. I'm not trying to say that. We got out of that category, remember, for evil sin somehow being used for, for good. But the principle is still the same. We've been this over and over and over in Genesis. So the law fails, the spirit gives life, right? Leveret marriage didn't work. The law didn't work, and God had to work around it. Same principle. It wasn't Judah's work. It wasn't the law, Levirate marriage, that worked. It was bypassed from the law. Leveret marriage and the law didn't work in the same way the law won't save you. What you do won't save you. But rather a workaround, which is Christ, always God's plan A. And so it is, as the story goes then, that the children of the unintended, given, passively received woman who is the heir to the promise, uh, are the heir to the promise, not Shella, his surviving son from his marriage. Which is another really interesting point, uh, this third point here. Another repeated theme from Genesis is the younger being the chosen, not the older, which is always the case. It's always, it's called the law of primogeniture, you know, when you have an inheritance goes through the oldest. That, that law gets broken and subverted a lot in Genesis, and it's supposed to make us pause and scratch our head and say, what is God doing? There's really no reason for this. The, the, the law is being worked aside from. And so as the story goes here, Tamar has twins. The older, who's technically born first, Zerah, with, with, sticks his hand out, but then withdraws his hand with a ribbon on it. Then the younger, Perez, is actually born. So the younger, as it says here, we've seen this, right? The younger, like Esau or Isaac over Ishmael, like Jacob over Esau, it's the third time we're seeing this. Now Perez is chosen over Zerah. Why? Again, it's similar to everything we've been saying this morning, just a different angle. We're twisting the diamond, the grace diamond in the light. It's related to two, but it's, it's different. It's, it's to undergird the principle of grace. The, the very nature of the birth tells these uh, of these twins tell us that in the line of Christ there is something unexpected and unfair about God's promise. When, when it comes to us, when I say unfair, I mean, in terms of what we have to offer. And that is grace. God loves working in this way. We've seen this. Genesis is full of stories like this to get very clear in the beginning how God's going to bring the promise into the world and what it means to be saved. How it comes to us. How it's God's mercy, not our work, that ultimately kind of dictates where we go. God loves working in this way to show us it's not by human exertion. It's not by... Zerah trying to get out of the womb first, but rather God's design that he would withdraw his hand and Perez being born and being chosen. It's not by a natural descent or moral ability, but by God's choice, by his way of working, and his ultimate choice is to bring his son into the world to save us. That's why Jesus is connected with this story genealogically in the first book of the Bible. All these themes are wrapped up into him whether it's God overlooks sin or the principle of grace, and we'll see more before all is said and done. In fact, it's also interesting here that Judah is um, kind of shocking, really, that Judah is chosen to be in the line of Christ over guys like Reuben, who genealogically is the firstborn of Jacob's sons, and over Joseph. So after all we looked at last week, you might think, Jesus is certainly going to come from Joseph, right? After that climactic narrative, after that amazing fall and rise, after that amazing rags-to-riches story, essentially. And he does point to Christ, but he doesn't come genealogically from him. So narratively, we might think it's going to be Joseph. Genealogically, Reuben, firstborn. It's neither. It's this random fourthborn guy, uh, Judah, who is chosen. Again, it's against the law of primogeniture. So whether it's against the law of primogeniture or it's against the law of, and kind of aside from the law of the, um, as we see here, the uh, um, lever at marriage. It's aside from law we're seeing that God graciously gives and provides unexpectedly. That's what happens on the cross. You're not saved by being first or being best or being super strong and righteous. It's not about you about God who graciously chooses to show mercy. Romans 9:16 says, "So then its salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy." Romans three uh, forgot the verse. "The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law. The righteousness of God, Jesus Christ in context has been manifested apart from the Ten Commandments, apart from moral law, apart from do this or else, apart from conditionality, apart from the law of levirate at marriage, apart from the law of primogeniture, apart from do this, it's receive me. Do you see how, how it's about grace? Even though the law and the prophets in the Old Testament, the Old Testament stories point to Jesus, It's it's apart from that that the righteousness of God is manifested. And so we rest. Kevin Van Hooser says, uh, Grace contradicts every system of religion precisely because God's free mercy cannot be predicted, calculated, or manipulated. Grace is especially troublesome for control freaks, sinners who are curved in on themselves, bent on securing their own existence and status. Which we all are. Um, but if you guys are reading these stories in the Bible, as we all should, and, but, but I mean by that, and asking the right question, what, and that is, what do I have to do to be saved? If you were asking that question, I really want to know what it means to be saved, and you're, and you're reading this story, where would it make you go? Other than like a dictionary or something, or, you know, where would it make you go? It would make us run not to ourselves, or to the front of the line, but to God to ask for salvation, right? Because it's clear that the the likely, the hardest working, the most intelligent, the oldest, many times aren't saved or chosen. So we'd stop working and we'd ask God, please make me like one of the ones that you just decided not to kill in the story. Please make me like the ones in the story that are chosen by grace. Make me not the firstborn. It actually makes us get over ourselves. It makes us ask to be saved rather than work. It makes us less reliant on ourselves. See, these stories that the Kevin Van Hooser quote was fantastic because if we really get grace, it just messes with us, right? It messes with us in a good way. It's completely unfair because it's completely God's choice to give it to whom he wants, Not that we have no play in that story, we do. We respond to it. We believe the gospel, it's grace, and we respond. And God works through that. But it's given, not found or or earned. And again, it's why it's so important Jesus is from these stories. And he's descended not from Shelah or Reuben or Joseph or Zerah. If, If it said that, the Bible would be completely rewritten and the end would be saved by works and human exertion because Zerah got out first. Zerah was strongest. Joseph had the rags to riches story he had most of the the Genesis narrative Reuben was first born Shelah was actually the son of Judah that he worked for go back to to um, Ishmael Abraham worked for that son Isaac was given right so it'd be through Ishmael that the promise came and you know Leah wouldn't be the wife it would be the one that was worked for, Rachel. I and mean, all these stories would be changed. If we were saved, at the end of the story said, you're saved by works, not by grace, all these stories would cease to exist or they'd be changed. But in fact, they're flipped on their heads for a reason so that none can boast, none can work for anything. At the end, at the end of our ropes, we just say, God, save me alone because I can't save myself. And that is kind of where Judah gets here. So a few quick words on Judah's character transformation before we close. It's beautiful. You kind of see a picture of this here. He goes from foolishness and selfishness and functional hatred for a daughter-in-law in in Genesis 38 to this statement. She is more righteous than I. In other words, righteousness is out there. It's not in here. He's recognizing his sin. It, It takes a lot of humility to say this. From the heart and really mean it, but he's basically saying, "I'm a sinner. I'm unrighteous." A, a crucial step in the process of coming to faith in God for salvation. And so, I'll stop here to simply ask: When was the last time you said this audibly to God, Christian or not? When's the last time you said it to God or another Christian in confession? It, it very well may be the thing keeping you from true joy and from experiencing and enjoying God's presence, because subconsciously you might think that that you have something to add to the equation of salvation. You know, it might keep us from truly walking in grace and appreciating the cross. It's simple, but the reality is we're just seeing a man in the Bible who actually does this, actually comes to the end of his rope and says, I'm I'm a sinner. And you don't see the end of the story here really with him, but you do see it later when he moves from the top to the second thing and then here. To sacrificing himself for Benjamin. So in Genesis, later in the story, after the brothers, including Judah, sell Joseph, remember, into slavery in Egypt and go there later and are reunited, and they don't recognize him at first, though. Joseph asks that Benjamin remain with him, kind of in slavery or in, in subjection as they go back to their land and get their father and so forth, but big story to that. But Judah speaks up and offers himself instead of Benjamin. a wonderful little verse in the, in the Joseph narrative to not miss. He says, Judah says, now therefore to Joseph, please let your servant remain instead of the boy, as a servant, he's selling himself into slavery essentially, as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. This is straightforward substitution, straightforward intercession. And and, and there's two things here. On, On the human level, you want to change your character, you've got to understand your sin first like with Judah. We have to humble ourselves before God and ask him to save us. And then, and only then, will true godliness, which is sacrificial love, uh, as the Bible teaches, will flow from that. But then secondly, this is not really a straightforward example either. It's not something that the Bible is saying do this, although we should do that, love in that capacity. It's great. But remember, where does Jesus come from? He comes from this man and from this particular story. He comes from this mini-interaction. This is ancestral for Jesus Christ. He comes from this mini-intersection or uh, interaction between Judah and Joseph and Benjamin. Me instead of him. Take me. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us, you guys. This is the gospel. Jesus has said said before God, uh, take me. uh, Let me absorb the sin. I'll go, not them. He's He's been this ultimate prince, this ultimate son who has substituted himself for you and I. That's the gospel that we're called to believe in and just receive by grace. And so I think with Judah, the, the gospel imagery here that he wouldn't use those words, but it humbled him. You know, it, try to put yourself in Judah's shoes. It's hard, I know. But if, you, if you're in Judah's shoes in Genesis 38 and you have these three kids, two of them die, and you have one left you're sinning to no end, then all this happens with your daughter-in-law and it's it's one of your sons through your daughter-in-law that you, um, that you see is in the in the chosen line a little bit later on in life that that's the highlighted person. And what are you going to think? I mean, if you have kids and then this happens, you know, it's, he's probably scratching his head thinking, no, actually, and then Perez is chosen, actually, I've got Shella over here. Sorry, I kind of hedged him in, but... That's actually my son. This is, I guess this is my son, but I didn't intend that. I didn't intend for that to happen. I didn't work for that. It happened passively. God has looked over my sin. He showed me grace. He didn't kill us and my daughter-in-law. And He chose to make Jesus come through that person, this, the solution through that person. What are you going to think? You're going to be humbled. God chose to say, I'm going to work aside from all of your work, all your intention, all your plans, all your ambitions, all your sin, I'm going to bring my solution into the world through uh, another means, this son here, Perez. Not even Zerah, who's supposed to be, There's not layer to it, you know, but it humbled the guy to the point where he does this. He actually says, I'll die, because who knows if they'd come back. I'll die for the sake of Benjamin, which then gives way to a greater Judah who would do that for us. So Matthew 1, 3, in conclusion, uh, says Jesus is descended from Judah and Perez, whose mother was Tamar. Why, in summary? To show us that he has come to bring justice to the oppressed, to forgive sins, to bring grace, not law or works, but to work against our expectations, and actually apart from law. He has come to usher in an era of repentance and faith, and he has come to substitute himself uh, for us on a cross that this passage can only glimpse at, at best, but now we see clearly in the New Testament. Let's pray. God, help us to believe today in the gospel. Pray, Father, for your help by the Holy Spirit to, um, to not run from stories like this, but to look at them, warts and all, and um, God, just to feel a sense of this is not about us, like it wasn't for Judah when we read, the, read these stories, uh, to, see, to see a glimpse of our storyline, but also Christ's, the ultimate substitute. Uh, thank you so much, God, for the character of Judah, and we just scratched the surface today, but in um, how he points ahead and kind of serves, actually, it's kind of a Christmassy Advent-like thing today in the sense that we're looking at your genealogy in Matthew 1, that Tamar is actually included, and Judah's actually, Perez actually included uh, in this storyline. Uh, It must be by grace or these stories make absolutely no sense and we'll actually despise them. But help us instead as humble people to accept them and to know it's actually really good that they're here. Otherwise, I wouldn't be saved either. Um, Help us to respond now in song and communion. In Christ's name, amen.